Greetings. This is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Today, I have the pleasure to hand over the reins of the podcast to my colleague and fellow portfolio specialist, Kristen Sheffield. Kristen will be joined by John Lesh, the financial sector's team leader and banking analyst at Diamond Hill. Kristen and John will discuss the difficult time bank stocks have had since the beginning of the year, introduce us to a new acronym, CECL, and discuss the current rate environment and its impact on the banking sector. As we work through these unprecedented times, we ask for your understanding for any sound quality issues that may arise. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy Kristen's conversation with John Lesh. John, thank you for joining joining me today. Got a lot to cover today, so let's uh, jump right into the questions. The current market environment has been pretty tough for bank stocks, which are down on average 40% this year. Uh, Lower interest rates are obviously a a near-term headwind, but I think the bigger question and concern right now has to do with the likelihood of increased credit costs as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. It seems like some fear still lingers from the outsized credit losses that were seen during the financial crisis. And obviously there's been quite a few changes since that time, more regulatory oversight, higher capital requirements, annual stress testing, things of that sort. But how are you thinking about the credit risk from the current economic downturn and are banks in better shape this time around? Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me on, Kristen. Uh, Always good to catch up on these important topics. Uh, So credit losses are definitely going to be going up at the banks. Uh, The sort of the level of which is kind of the million dollar question, right? Uh, I mean, I believe, you know, if you were to look at the drivers of the last credit cycle, whether it was uh, construction lending or over leveraged single family home borrowers, you know, that's not going to be the driver this time. Uh, I mean, if you think about shutting down the U.S. economy for you know several months now, um, travel grinding to a halt, you can think through the buckets that are going to be most exposed. I mean, sort of anything that is hospitality or travel related, uh, such as loans to hotels or restaurants, um, retail, commercial real estate is another one, especially for non-essential retail. Uh, I mean, grocery uh, obviously is still hanging in there. But if you were to think about kind of non-essential retail, you know, they've been under secular pressure anyways uh, from the movement to online. And it seems like this could be, you know, the acceleration of the decline of brick and mortar retail. I mean, we've already seen a handful of retailers going bankrupt uh, since this whole thing started. So I think that could be an area of pressure. And then kind of even before the pressure from the lockdown um, and decreasing demand energy, you know, you had geopolitical stuff going on in March with the Saudis and OPEC, uh, you know, the Saudis and Russia arguing over prices. Uh, so that impacts energy prices. And then you have, you know, the huge drop off in demand because nobody's driving, planes aren't flying. Uh, so you have a huge supply glut that's impacting prices. So any banks that uh, are exposed to energy lending uh, are feeling pressure too. Thankfully, uh, you know, you alluded to this a little bit, banks, I believe, are better prepared than they were in the last cycle. You noted capital levels are much higher uh, than they were coming in the last cycle. Uh, Banks are carrying much more liquidity than they were in the last cycle. Um, And many banks have also de-risked the balance sheet. So if you were to look at um, the categories of loans that cause the most pain for the system, much of that has been pushed out of the commercial banking system. Uh, so de-risk there. Banks have kind of learned their lesson. There's been tighter underwriting standards. You know, even as the cycle had you know gotten 
you know, what many thought was kind of long in the tooth, um, most bank management teams thought that underwriting was still reasonably disciplined, at least from the structure standpoint. Uh, pricing had gotten to be an issue where spreads were incredibly thin. Uh, that was the kind of one complaint you did hear from management teams was tight pricing. Uh, but structures uh, seemed to be reasonably disciplined uh, for some of the reasons you pointed out. Increased regulatory oversight and stress testing uh, all helped that. And I think lastly, from the system as a whole, uh, the Fed was very quick um, to ensure that the plumbing of the financial system was wide open. You know, many of the actions that they took uh, so far to date, you know, they did over a matter of weeks where last go round, it took, it took many months uh, to get all those things up and going. So I think that's a huge plus. Um, and then, you know, I think lastly, you know, banks have been at the, at the encouragement of their regulators have been very aggressive on helping borrowers with loan modifications. I mean, this is an extreme situation. And so banks have been pushing out modifications to borrowers, trying to buy them time to get to the other side of this. And so one of the other big questions that we'll be watching a lot is, you know, are these modifications, whether you're giving borrowers six months, nine months, a year of modified payment terms, is that a, enough of a bridge to get them to the other side? Or are we kind of just supporting what could be zombie companies that need to go away anyways? So that's something we'll be watching. But, you know, I think systemically, uh, to wrap it up, I think the banking system is in much better shape uh, this go around than, than last uh, and better prepared to deal with what will be rising credit costs in the future. Other burning question on listeners' minds has to do with uh, understanding the ins and outs of bank accounting and the uh, implementation of a new accounting standard for current expected credit losses, uh, abbreviated as CECL, right? It's just what, just what you're thinking is on uh, people's mind, but in all uh, seriousness, the implementation of CECL was a big and important story uh, this earnings season. So why was it a big deal? You know, what are the impacts of implementing this now? Nothing gets the crowd going like bank accounting, uh, but no, it is, it is a big deal. Um, I mean, if you're gonna completely change how banks account for loan losses, you know, that would be import, important uh, regardless of when it's implemented. However, if you, you know, if you were to go back over the last hundred years, you know, I don't think you could have found a worse quarter than the first quarter of 2020 to implement uh, the new accounting standard. So I'll, tr I'll try to keep it as high level and uh, simple as possible. So under the old accounting regime, banks would have provision expenses go up more coincident with when they saw credit problems. So if I was a commercial borrower and the bank saw that my financial situation was deteriorating and there was a reasonable likelihood that they would have a loss on that loan, then they would make the provision for that particular loan. Under the new standard, banks are looking out over a reasonable forecast period, which could be debated, but say two or three years, and they are being required to uh, put up all their credit law, expected credit losses all at once for that forecast period. And so you're implementing this uh, in a period in which the forecast period, the next two or three years, couldn't have a wider range of potential economic, economic outcomes. And so, you know, who knows, we could get a vaccine uh, in June or July, and that's a game changer, and everybody's back to work and travel picks back up and all these problems are solved immediately, or you know, maybe all this stuff drags on for another year or two, which dramatically impacts um, how this plays out from an accounting standpoint. And the other thing uh, with CECL is that it's very model driven. 
which uh, makes it very difficult to compare from bank to bank how they're thinking about the process. And it seems like almost all the banks are relying on forecasts uh, put out there from Moody's. And you know, Moody's has kind of a base case and stress case. And you know, oftentimes banks are sort of saying that they're relying on you know, putting different weights on different uh, the stress case or the base case. And then what also makes it more complicated is sort of which forecast they're using. So for example, almost all the banks that reported first quarter earnings a couple weeks ago were relying on the March forecast from Moody's. Uh, one of our holdings, Sterling, uh, which has been a long time holding at the firm, used the April forecast from Moody's, which was much more severe than the March forecast. And to the best of my knowledge, it's the only bank that I cover that uh, was using the April forecast and that drove their provision expense 35% higher than it would have been using the March forecast. And so not only do you need to think about, you know, which scenario are the banks relying on, uh, you also need to pay attention to which is their base case forecast. So it dramatically clouds up comparability uh, of the provision expense and loan loss reserves for the banking system. So that kind of muddies the water, but the, the kind of bright side is, is that banks are taking a lot of the provisioning pain up front. So unlike the last cycle where, you know, provision expense could drag on, or I should say elevated provision expense could drag on for several years, uh, the majority of this pain is going to be felt in 2020, I believe. I mean, I was just talking to a management team yesterday, um, actually Sterling, and it sounds like the majority of the provisioning pain is going to be felt by the end of the third quarter, they thought, from an industry perspective. And so, that that is a definite shift from last cycle where um, you're going to have the provision pain felt up front and we're probably not going to see the spike in credit losses until you know into 21 and into 22 and so you know, there's this this kind of changing or mismatch between the provision expense being felt up front and then the charge offs being much further down the road the other bright uh, side of that is that if you look in the first quarter that despite the uh, elevated uncertainty and very high level provision expense uh, due to seasonal implementation, most banks uh, were still profitable in the quarter or break even. And so this was you know, a very high level of provision expense and they were still break even, which means you're not impairing capital levels. And to the extent that provision expenses should moderate through the rest of the year, uh, that points to stable if not growing capital levels and stable, if not growing, tangible book value levels. So th there are some some positives to look to here in, in CECL implementation. So it sounds like you know they're taking a lot of this uh, pain up front, and you think uh, this could be kind of misunderstood and kind of down the road, you know, maybe bank earnings are in a little bit better shape than than people might have expected. Yeah, I mean, I think if we get you know some more economic clarity towards the end of this year, I think it could set up for a very interesting outlook into 2021 as investors start looking at, you know, okay, maybe we're through the worst of the credit storm in terms of how it impacts uh, the income statements of banks. And then they start looking back towards, okay, what's the normalized earnings power of this business coming out of the credit cycle? And that's when you get multiple re-rating uh, on these banks. So I, I do think it's setting up for an interesting situation later this year. So we talked a little bit about uh, credit and CSOL, but I think I'd, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, the rate environment. You know, obviously we've seen a sharp move downward in rates over the past eight weeks. 
you know, this is, you know, a near-term headwind uh, for the banks. So how are you thinking about the current interest rate environment? How much of a headwind is it, you know, particularly for some of the small to mid-sized banks that you focus on uh, that don't have, you know, investment banking and the trading side that some of the larger money centers have uh, that can, you know, offset some of that net interest margin pressure that comes with lower rates and a flattening yield curve? Sure. Uh, so I think the important thing that many folks miss here is that, I mean, in general, yes, uh, the declining rate environment is not good, uh, but it's not equal. It will not have an equal impact across all banks. I mean, to think of our bank holdings uh, and to think of the extremes, say, first of Long Island, which is uh, in our small cap strategy, is actually positioned to benefit from uh, the rate environment. And that's because they have uh, primarily fixed rate loans and uh, can lower their deposit costs and so their margin will increase. On the opposite side of that, uh, the most extreme would be Silicon Valley Bank, uh, which is owned in several strategies, and they have a heavily variable rate loan book and many of their deposits uh, are zero cost. And so when the deposit cost is already at zero, you have no room there. And then if your uh, loans are variable, you're going to get squeezed on the loan side. And so that's where you get margin pressure. So those are kind of the two extremes. And different banks are kind of along the spectrum in there. Um, and then the other thing that you need to keep in mind is the positioning and work that the banks have done to sort of protect themselves for this environment. Uh, for example, Silicon Valley, in Silicon Valley's case, they were very aggressive at trying to reduce their asset sensitivity or how much a situation like this would impact them. And they started that very aggressively earlier this year, uh, kind of before the Fed rate cuts and actually got to the desired position they wanted. Um, so they are in a better position than they otherwise would have been. Another example would have been Cadence, uh, which is a bank that's held in a couple of our strategies. And they had put on a very opportunistic hedge last year uh, that basically completely protected them on the downside uh, from declining rates while you know, at the same time limiting uh, or only giving up modest upside if rates were to increase. So, I mean, they were tremendously benefited by that, that strategy. So banks are actively managing their interest rate sensitivity. Um, so it's, it's not fair just to say that just because the rates have declined that it's, it's, a, it's a negative. Um, the other thing to consider that I think too many people focus uh, simply on what's going to happen to the optics of bank interest rate or net interest margins. So are the margins going to go up or go down? What I think many people fail to pay attention to is the ability to grow earning assets, right? So even if, as uh, Jim Herbert, who's the CEO at First Republic, one of our longtime holdings, says you can't eat margin, uh, if, if you can grow your earning asset base, at attractive rates, even at a declining net interest rate margin, uh, you're still able to grow your net interest income dollars. So what actually falls to the bottom line? So a company like First Republic, sure they might experience some net interest margin pressure, but they have such a strong organic growth engine that even with declining margins, they still should be able to grow net interest income dollars uh, at attractive rates and you know kind of low double digits. So. I think that it's important to keep that in mind as we think about rates. Uh, there are, you know, whether it's actions that the, the management teams are taking to offset the pressure or structure the balance sheet or the organic growth, growth profile of the different institutions makes a big difference.
All right, final question uh, for you, John. You know, with all the moving parts, the interest rate environment, the understanding uh, of the impact of something like CESOL, which makes the comparability of bank earnings pretty difficult, you know, the nuances of each bank's loan book and underwriting capability, you know, it seems next to impossible to really understand what is going on with these businesses unless you have a deep understanding uh, and the time to dig through all the details. You've been covering the small mid bank space for over a decade now. You know, how do you think about the importance and the advantage of specialization in a time like this? I think it comes down to kind of we've, we've seen the movie before, um, having gone through the financial crisis. And you know, one example that comes to mind uh, is BOK Financial, which is an Oklahoma-based bank that we've owned since the last energy downturn. And that actually gave us the opportunity to make our initial investment. And seeing how investors react to energy price declines, for example, I mean, if you go back to, I think it was March 9th, uh, when the news of kind of the price war between the you know, Saudis and the Russians on oil prices came out, uh, you know, BOK was down, I think, over 20% on that day. And just sort of thinking through, you know, knowing their underwriting history, and then thinking about the market reaction. I mean, I think the numbers were roughly, you know, they lost a billion dollars in market cap that day, which is sort of the equivalent of writing two thirds of their energy exposure or assuming that two thirds of their energy, energy exposure defaults, and then they have 50% loss given default on those loans. And you know, that's exactly the kind of uh, quick reaction we saw in the last energy downturn where people sort of shoot first and ask questions later. And you see that kind of across the board dealing with this situation. So whether it's somebody who might have restaurant exposure or have a hotel exposure, you know, kind of the two of the more credit sensitive buckets we talked about at the top of the podcast, um, you know, having the nuanced understanding of, you know, both the underwriting history of the management team and then understanding the exposures. So, you know, if you're going to say energy exposure, for example, not all energy exposure is created equal, whether it's uh, financing E&P companies or midstream energy companies, which is more infrastructure based or energy services. Those have very different risk profiles uh, and potential uh, default and loss given default patterns. And then thinking about restaurant exposures, you know, how much of it is to quick service restaurants uh, you know, that have drive-ins that have remained open and have been able to continue to generate revenue. And so I think you know, having that understanding, not only of kind of that first level of exposure of the banks, but kind of that second level of, well, what's inside that energy bucket or the restaurant bucket or these other kind of higher sensitivity buckets is important. But I think looking forward, I think it's, it's more of the psychology because during the financial crisis, as that was unfolding, you, you sort of had this arms race of sell-side analysts who, who could come out with the bigger loss estimate. And the psychology turns down, turns from, uh, you know, what, what's the burn down value of the tangible book value uh, of the different banks? And so that's what you're seeing now. There are many banks that are trading below tangible book value, similar to what we saw during the crisis. I mean, I think if you go back to mid-March, it was something like 50 or 60% of the banks that I covered, not necessarily just that we own, but kind of the broad coverage was trading below tangible book value, which is implying that there's going to be meaningful capital destruction uh, through the cycle. And as I brought up during the Cecil commentary, um, during the first quarter, many of the banks were still profitable or break even or even lost a little money in the quarter, um, but it wasn't a capital impairment. And I still think we'll see capital levels build. 
and we'll see tangible book values grow throughout the year, which again sets up for an interesting move uh, at the end of this year and into 2020. And we saw this coming out of the financial crisis where once sort of the clouds parted a little bit and there was some optimism about the economy and it felt like maybe the loss um, exposure in terms of the income statement had kind of peaked, that's when people start thinking about, okay, what's the normalized earnings power of the business? And what's, what multiple do you put on that? And thinking about normalized earnings and putting PEs and you know, regular price to tangible book value multiples on those businesses. And so that's where I think we are now. And having gone through uh, the financial crisis, I mean, I remember at the time, Rick Dillon, uh, Diamond Hills founder, you know, made the comment that you know, he couldn't be happier that uh, a young analyst at that time were going through that at that time in our career and that it would pay dividends down the road. I mean, I've thought about that statement many times as this has unfolded because, I mean, I think that psychology and understanding how investors react in these situations has been incredibly helpful. Well, I'm glad that uh, we have someone like you to go through and sift through all these important details. So uh, thank you for your time and joining me today. And uh, thank you to Doug for letting me uh, guest host again. Thanks, Kristen. Talk to you soon. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.